is Susie G, and welcome to episode six. Today I'm talking with Mehdi Harrison, who inspires the crap out of me. Mehdi is a prolific writer and author, an all-American triathlete, a mother of five, has a PhD from Princeton, and is just an all-around fierce friggin' woman. I've admired Mehdi on the internet for quite some time. We have real-life friends in common, and even more Facebook friends in common. She is intelligent and articulate, and I've long been a fan of her essays and editorials. A few months back, she started a podcast called The Mormon Sabbatical, and on it, she takes listeners through her intentional year-long break with the LDS Church. It's fascinating. So when I'd recorded just one or two episodes of this podcast, I reached out to Medi and asked her if she wanted to come on, and she immediately said yes. And then I immediately kind of panicked, <laughs> because I'd never met or spoken with her, and honestly, she low-key intimidated me. But guys, geez, this woman is amazing. So sit back and enjoy this conversation about fluctuating faith with Medi Harrison. So tell me a little bit about what started your faith crisis. I'm, I'm trying to think how to describe it. So, so I lost my, my youngest child, my sixth child, um, in 2005 to a stillbirth. And as a result of that, um, I was going through enormous grief, but also I was really struggling with the messages that people were sending to me, I shouldn't say sending, were telling me um, about why this had happened and um, what God was like. Um, So I heard a lot of people say variations on that there was a lesson that I was supposed to learn from this or and or that um, that God had taken my daughter because it was the only way to get me and my family to work harder to go to the celestial kingdom. And um, I'm, I'm still like shocked. Even looking back on this, I can't understand why people would say that to somebody who had just lost a child, like days before people would say this. And I think they honestly believed that it was comforting on some, like, I think some, on some level, they told themselves that they were saying something nice to me. Although quickly on in my grief, I realized that most of the things that people say to you when you're grieving is actually to help them feel better and not you. Um, And they don't, I think they don't realize that they're doing that. Um, But they are also shocked and um, they're trying to be self-protective. They they want to tell themselves that this this will never happen to them. Um, So I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of the time there are people who are inside the grief and people who are outside the grief. People who are inside grief understand that you don't try to tell people some narrative about why this happened to them. Like it's just been astonishing to me. People who've had a, a terrible situation, they, they never try to tell me this narrative. It's only people who haven't been through it right. who try to tell me the narrative. People who have been through a situation like this, they just listen. They're just like, I'm so sorry. Um, at the very least, they just say, I'm sorry. And I was surprised to discover how helpful it was to just have people say, I'm sorry, and not anything else. Um, or they just sit and listen, and they ask you how you're doing. Um, it, it's people who haven't been through grief who want to give you a narrative, I think, because they're afraid. Um, and, and they need to have this narrative of to make the world make sense and to give them a sense of safety. So for me, that safety was lost when my daughter died, because I had done all of the things that I felt like you did to check off your list of like, I'd never tasted alcohol. I'd never tasted coffee. I, 
I, not only was I a good Mormon, but I just had never, I didn't understand how people, how anyone could have a problem with following the church rules. I loved rules. I followed them 100%. I think I had missed church like once in my entire life. <laughs> um, I, I went to church when I was sick. I went to church. I went to church 12 hours after I gave birth to my second child. I delivered her at like midnight and I was at church at one o'clock the next day um, with my baby. I was so dedicated to the church. I said yes to every calling that I was ever asked to do. And yet the response that I got from people was, oh, you have some lesson. Like you weren't good enough. Mm -hmm. This was the only way to get you to heaven was for you to take for God to take away your child. And what that said to me was that God was and, and I say this sometimes to people as a joke, but I really mean it. Mormon God is a sadistic bastard. And I couldn't, I couldn't worship him anymore. I couldn't mm -hmm. worship a God whose way of, of getting people to follow his rules more or something. I don't know what I was supposed to do more, but was to take away a child, an innocent baby. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, why, why did people just say, oh, that was a terrible accident? I, I don't, I still don't understand. It was like, why did it have to be my fault? But the, the pressure they put on me that it was my fault and it, it just led me down this rabbit hole of guilt and God must hate me for some reason. And there's, if I don't learn this lesson, whatever it is, then um, God's going to take away one of my other children. That was my biggest fear that the sadistic bastard Mormon God was going to take away one of my other children. And every day, you know, I'd send my kids off to school and I would, every minute of the day, I would worry that they were going to die. And somehow it would be my fault that too, that, and and I think that other people live in this reality um, all the time. Like other grownups understand that your loved ones can be taken away at any time, and you don't have control over that. But Mormonism had made me believe that I had this control over the universe. Right, right. That if I just checked off enough things on this list of righteousness, that nothing bad would happen to me. Of course, I mean, I'm sure if you'd asked me at the time. Like, do you think anything bad could happen to you? I would have said yes, but not like that. Not like my daughter dying. I, I didn't believe that could happen to me. Mm -hmm. So when you first started doubting, what did that look like? Well, I wouldn't call it doubt. I would just say it was, it, I had this long struggle of, do I still believe or do I not believe? And once I reached a point where I realized that if I kept believing in this terrible God of Mormonism that I thought was true, that I was going to kill myself because that was, I, it was the only thing I could think of that would actually protect my children. Like, I really believed that, like, if I killed myself, then God wouldn't have to teach me a lesson by killing another one of my children. And I know that that was like not particularly clear thinking and that I was grief stricken, but that was the logic that I came to. And um, so I just woke up one day. I, it really was, Mormons say this all the time. You don't just wake up one day and decide not to like believe in the church. But that is what happened. I was like, I, I was like, I, if I keep believing, I'm going to kill myself. So I'm not going to believe anymore. I, I just rejected God completely. I became an atheist. I still attended church um, but for family reasons and also because it was just too overwhelming for me to figure out how to like make all these changes in my life at the same time. Mm -hmm. So for about five years, I attended church um, and was a complete atheist. And um, I figured out various ways around, uh, you know, telling people that I was an atheist because nobody wanted to hear that. And I reached a breaking point eventually when um, 
the the bishopric asked me in to call me to be the gospel doctrine teacher and and I couldn't believe that I had been so successful at fooling everybody for like it's been four or five years and I was like you guys haven't figured it out yet I don't believe in God like I I believe in nothing I do you really like I can teach your gospel doctrine class if you want but I don't think you want somebody up there who doesn't believe in mm-hmm. God and um that was the first moment I'd really come clean to anybody. And uh, they tried to talk me out of it at first. It was like, oh, of course you do. You come to church every week. And I was like, yeah, I know I come to church every week, but I don't believe in anything. I think you're all making stories up to make yourself feel better all the time. These are just stories, friends. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I can talk to about stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they, they eventually told me that, um, they believed that the call was from God, that God had inspired them to call me to this calling that was ridiculous because it was their only chance to find out what was really going on. But I, but after that, I became, I think, uh, a pariah. <laughs> and maybe rightly so. I mean, what kind of calling can they offer to somebody who says something like that and clings to it? Um, uh, they tried to call me into the scouts, and I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate not even scouts. scouts. <laughs> not doing scouts. Um, like sexism, anybody? No, thank you. And they tried to talk me out of. They're like, oh, there's no sexism. We give exactly the same amount of money to the scouts as the young women's organizations. I was like, you guys, please don't try to tell me that lie. That is a lie. <laughs> and then finally, they called me into the nursery, which was a good calling for me for a while. I love little children, and and it was the right time. Um, right after Mercy died, the nursery was very painful. Um, so, so, you know, seven or eight years later, it was a good time for me Mm -hmm. to go to the nursery and, and interact with small children again. And, um, yeah, the lessons are really simple. I am grateful. I have two hands. I am on board with that lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, finding that common ground. Yeah. I mean, I'm even okay with saying Jesus loves you. I think it's great for kids to have this belief that they are loved and that everyone in the world loves them, even though they don't. Like, I, I think that's great. So so I stayed there for a long time, and then I got called into um, the Sunbeams last year. Well, it was 2017. And um, I don't know if it was other factors, but um, I stayed for a year, and I really I couldn't keep going to uh, the primary sharing time. It just broke me. Um, mm-hmm. I started having to sing different words to the songs because I couldn't sing, I couldn't sing about a male God. It's always a male God. Like I, so I changed words to songs and, but even that didn't fix it because all of the songs are about what the boys get to do and they're not about what girls get to do. And mm-hmm. there's this worship of the leaders. We sing about follow the prophet. I just couldn't do it anymore. And then there was the policy. I, I just, the relentlessness of heterosexual families being sealed together and that like there was a little girl in my sunbeam class who when you asked her about her dad she would say i don't have a dad <laughs> i never poked into her family life i don't know where her dad was she has like six siblings but he was clearly not a presence in her life mm-hmm. But every day at church, every Sunday at church, the church would talk about being sealed to your parents, your mom and your dad, and your dad has the priesthood and your mom doesn't have the priesthood. And I would sit there thinking, what are we telling this three-year-old? 
she already is sad about not having a dad. And we're just pounding it into her mm -hmm. over and over and over again that she will never be full, you know, whole in the church. And, and she wasn't the only kid, but she was the one who was in my class. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I, I gave them about four weeks notice and I just said, I'm sorry, I can't anymore. Um, and, and they really tried to talk me out of it because, because I'm a really good teacher of three-year-olds. <laughs> I will just say, I, I think my three-year-olds loved me to death because I had no, I didn't have expectations that they would behave in ways that were inappropriate for, th for three-year-olds. I feel like lots of teachers think that three-year-olds are going to be able to do stuff that three-year-olds can't do. Right. And we just played games and I loved them. And we went on walks outside and I asked them about their families and what they got for Christmas. And, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't anymore. Um, so I'm taking a, a sabbatical right now. I'm not attending Mormon church and I'm not attending any other churches and I'm going to make decisions at the end of the year and decide how I feel about Mormonism and, and if I'm interested in another church because I do still believe in God. I have a very rich spiritual mm -hmm. life. I pray on a level that I never prayed when I was a practicing Mormon. When when prayer as a Mormon was about a list. It was a shopping list prayer. That's what I feel like my prayers as a, right. as a Mormon, like I want this and I want this and I want this, the end. And now my prayers are just like sitting with God and like experiencing the love of God. And I don't skip prayers ever because I, they are part of my, they're the best part of my life is the end of the day in this communion with God and the love of God. So yeah, that's where I am right now. So this sabbatical, is it for a calendar year? Yes. I mean, that's the intention. I, I like counting the numbers. And so, yeah, I, I've deliberately chosen one specific year. Mm -hmm. Maybe I won't ha make a decision by the end of the year, but but that's the that's the idea. So through the sabbatical, is, is it an active sabbatical? Are you kind of tracking and processing? Um, or do, do you have any, I guess, expectations of what the end of the year is going to look like? Well, I mean... I I started out with the idea that I was just going to take a break and that maybe that would help me heal and that I could make some better decisions at the end of the year because I was, I was so angry. Um, and, but some things have happened that have really mm, have changed. I think the way I'm, I'm looking at the sabbatical one is that I started this podcast, the Mormon sabbatical where I talk about what I'm doing. And that has really helped me um, to be more deliberate in, in some of the choices that I'm making and, and mm -hmm. making myself process what is it that is, what is it I love about Mormonism and what is it that I'm, that I can't do anymore? And um, are there other places where I could find the things I love about Mormonism? Um, but this, the second thing that happened was the reversal of the, of the exclusion policy, mm -hmm. which I really, I had prayed for, that for a long time, at least as much as I pray for anything. Um, I had spent three years, over three years, going to church wearing black um, because I was in mourning for my church. And I wore a rainbow ribbon that was very, very visible. It was another reason I suspect I'm kind of a pariah or was a pariah in my ward that people didn't want to talk to me because I was so visibly I had a message. I walk, walking into the church building, you couldn't look at me and not know what I thought mm -hmm. <laughs> about that exclusion policy. And um, so when it was reversed, I I had this moment of like 
jubilation and like relief. Oh, I can't believe it. Only three years, three and a half years. And then about 20 minutes later, all the anger came back to the surface. And I was like, how dare they? <laughs> how dare they not make an apology? How dare they say that that was God's will? That was never God's will. And it just made me struggle even more with the Mormon idea of obedience and um, hierarchy. Yes. Those are just, like, I, I love so many parts of Mormonism, but I cannot, um, I cannot with the institutional church. Um, so, so to me, that's like, yeah, I, I know I'm, if I, if in any sense, after the sabbatical, I return to Mormonism, it will be not to that institutional church. There will be no tithing paid. There will be no temple attendance. There will be like me not wearing dresses to church, not because I don't like dresses, but just because I would have to make a really clear, I would continue to have to make a clear message. Like, I'm sorry, dudes, you're not in charge of me. Right. <laughs> I, God, God speaks to me just fine on my own. I don't need other people to tell me what God says. So thank you very much. For a while, I feel like I tried to ride that line, too, of being kind of subversive while still being faithful. And I don't know if that's a thing you can really do. But no, for I me, they try to do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to ride that line for as long as I could. And it became so difficult and so muddied for me personally I know like I have friends who do it um yeah. but for me it just beca it became too hard and it became too what did your time um in the time that you you know feel like you like became atheist in your heart but you were still continuing to go to church how did church feel because for a long time I tried I tried to do the thing where I went and I'm like well like I'm not I'm not believing these things deep down in my heart but it's not hurting anything to go you know there were still social reasons and community reasons and lots of positive reasons to still go to church for me. And so I did. Um, but more and more I was getting like, I would come home feeling angry at the lessons um, and just made me feel not in a healthy place. So what was your mindset when, you know, when you say you were telling yourself like all kinds of things to like, you know, just to still go to church and sit through church, how did that feel? So I when I was an atheist, it was actually much easier to attend church than when I started to believe in God again. When mm -hmm. I was an atheist, it was like a, going to a play or like being an anthropologist. Like I was, it was interesting to me to watch Mormons and see why they said stuff, but it didn't hurt me because mm -hmm. it was just silly. It was a performance. It was a story that they told themselves. But to me, I didn't believe in, I didn't even believe in right and wrong anymore. And so they, they couldn't hurt my feelings because there was nothing there. Um, mm -hmm. But when I started to believe in God again, and then I had this feeling of like the goodness and the love of God, and it just went against so many of the things that I heard within Mormonism, that was when I was, it's funny to me that, that really believing in God again was what made me have to leave Mormonism. I couldn't go anymore because then it really hurt. Mm -hmm. And and every time you raise your hand to try to push back, just gently, you, you try so hard. I'm, you, it sounds like you've been in the same place. I know many, many people try to just gently, they use the language of Mormonism to gently, gently say, you know, maybe God's love is still unconditional, even though Russell M. Nelson said that it's not unconditional, that we have to earn it. Um, I, you try and then people, people push back and then you end up feeling like you're an alien in your own house. And 
that's when it becomes painful when you really still believe in God, I think. Um, yeah. Did you ever have anything that was like a breaking point? Cause I know for me personally, I could go and, you know, still go to church, still sit through the lessons, not super believe anything, you know, I'm, I'm hearing, um, and still be okay with it. Um, still be able to go, um, up until uh, the point when I couldn't. And for me personally, that point was, um, my kids were getting older. My daughter, um, who now she identifies as pansexual. She's a teenager, um, was bringing home these things from young women's, you know, how to prepare to become a faithful wife and mother. Um, and she's like, what if I don't want to be these things? And I was like, it's totally okay to not want to be those things. Um, and so for me, that was the point when I could no longer go to church and hear the things I'm hearing and still be okay with it. And so I'm wondering for you, like, you know, going to church, going, being in nursery, callings like that, um, that, you know, that part of church still feels okay. You know, there are parts that are okay. Nursery's okay. Was, was there a point for you um, where, you know, it no longer became okay? Did you have a breaking point like that? No, because I'd never, um, I, even though I would sit in church and keep my mouth shut, I didn't keep my mouth shut at home. My kids all knew where mm-hmm. I was. Right. I, I don't know if they, they knew that I was an atheist, but they knew that I thought many things about Mormonism were ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually, I had maybe a, a similar experience to what you're talking about um, with one of my daughters um, who she struggles with anxiety and depression to a really, really high level um, to the point where she's been hospitalized for suicidal ideation. And um, when she was about 13 or 14, um, I had to go in and talk to her young women's leaders and try to explain to them, these lessons that you are giving are harming my daughter. And, and um, they, I did it over and over again over the course of a couple of years and I realized finally that they couldn't hear me. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that's, if you try to talk to people and they just, so I would try to say to them things like, if you have a lesson on perfecting yourself, I have a kid who has a problem with scrupulosity. So what you are telling her is that she has to spend every minute of every day reading the scriptures. Like, right. and they would think that I was exaggerating. But I was not exaggerating. I mean, I had a kid who read um, the Book of Mormon all the way through, you know, every month for an entire year. Um, And telling her at church that if she had, if she felt bad about herself, it was because she wasn't working hard enough, that Mm -hmm. you are contributing to killing her. Like, (laughs) I don't, I, I, I tried to express that as gently as I could. But like, here are the areas, these lessons, you're going to have to figure out a way to work around them. And um, they couldn't hear me. And eventually, I just ended up telling my daughter, you know, I need you to stop going to church. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, it wasn't even about, that wasn't even about Mormonism. That was about our specific ward's inability to listen to me saying to them, could you please just not do this one thing? (laughs) Because... My kid is being harmed by that. And I understand that you think that that's a good message for the other kids. But if my kid's in the room, you can't give that message because she will come home suicidal. And she spent a lot of Sundays suicidal. 
And eventually, I, I am so glad she eventually uh, listened to me. It took another year of me saying, maybe you shouldn't go to church. Maybe church is a bad place for you. It, it took until she was about 16 that she could listen to me and not go. And she, she tried it out once one week. And then I was like, how do you feel? And she's like, I feel better. And I was like, yeah, you do feel better. To me, that, again, that wasn't necessarily about Mormonism because I think they could have done I think they could have figured out a way to do that. I, I've been to wards that talk openly about mental illness and about depression and places where people are very kind about it. But mm. my ward was not like that. And so I just had to, I had to step between my child and the harm that those people are causing her. And I know they didn't intend to. I know they were trying to be loving. Um, but they, something about them made it so they couldn't listen to me. They kept think, They kept telling me that they were going to pray for her as if that would fix the depression. And I think they still, many people in my ward believe that praying for somebody is better than them taking medication or going to therapy. And that message came through in everything they said to my daughter. And so it took me years to get her to take her medication. Um, and again, I was I was angry about that. But I, I feel like as a mother, I protect my kids and, and talk to them openly, regardless of Mormonism and, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I had this funny experience last year where, so, I mean, I'd give really weird uh, family home evening lessons. Um, so for one year, all of the family home evening lessons I gave were about other churches. Like, this is your introduction to Buddhism. This is your introduction to Shinto. This is what, you know, Protestants believe. Um, mm-hmm. So so I thought that was really useful. And um, one of the lessons I gave was about uh, uh, the difference between, why why other Christians don't think of Mormons as Christians, specifically the Nicene Creed. So I gave a lesson on the Nicene Creed, maybe not what your average Mormon mom does. And um, a month later, I was on the bike at a conference in Colorado at like 6 a.m. And I get a message from my son, mom, what's the Nicene Creed again? (laughs) He's 16. And so I text him while I'm on the bike, you know, explaining what the Nicene Creed is, send him a link. And he's talking to his friends about it. So I, I feel like I'm just, I've always been open with my kids about, they know I have problems with Mormonism. They know where I stand and that there are just things that Mormonism does that I'm like, nope, that's the line between mm-hmm. me and my kids. Can you speak for a minute about uh, feminism and Mormonism and how those two things go together for you? Um, I Personally, for me growing up, um, and hearing about a Heavenly Father, trying to imagine a Heavenly Father. Um, nothing, you know, not a whole lot about a Heavenly Mother. We knew, you know, we were taught that we have one, uh, but know nothing about her. Um, and for me, I just, I really needed something like that because um, we were taught about Heavenly Father. And for me, I didn't have a great dad thing growing up. Um, you know, mortal dad, I got three of them. (laughs) I don't have like a fantastically close relationship with any of them. One of those relationships is absolutely terrible. Uh, it's a non-relationship. Um, and so for me, it was always extremely hard for me to try to even imagine, um, you know, a very loving father in heaven. I didn't, it was almost impossible for me to even imagine what that was. And so, um, I feel like there's just so much lacking there um for me representation of women hearing about women 
uh, needing strong female role models, um, you know, that for me was just has always been a huge issue. And that's not just in Mormonism. That's in, you know, religion period. Um, but can you kind of speak to that for a minute? Uh, feminism and Mormonism and how you kind of hash that out? Um, so I, I thought of myself as very feminist when I was in college in my early 20s. And um, Heavenly Mother was not the thing that I, I was bothered by, but I was bothered by the lack of women in leadership and, and women um, not having priesthood power, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, I argued with my husband about changing my name. I remember there was an argument that we had about that. And I eventually ended up deciding to change my name because I had such a terrible relationship with my dad that I was like, why am I keeping his name <laughs> instead of the name of somebody that I love and who treats right. me well? Um, and like, there was no way to choose my mom's name. My mom's last name is just her dad's name. She doesn't, yeah. our culture doesn't really have a maternal line, a way of, of doing that. So, um, then when I started having babies, I really valued some of the messages that the church gave or that I felt like the church was giving to my husband, which were that he was important as a father and that he should be spending time and energy with his kids and that money was and power and like his position in his job were not the important things. I, I really valued that. I felt like um, I felt protected. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to admit that up front that I don't think Mormonism is all bad. And and um, I do think that women's roles are genuinely valued within the church on some level, um, much more than they are, say, in the world. Um, I, I feel like we're still living with second wave feminism, which is the assumption that women should just do all the stuff that men do in order to get the power that they have. Um in the workplace. And I felt that very much when I went to grad school at Princeton, there was just no, <laughs> no appreciation for women's roles. When I got pregnant in grad school, everybody told me I was an idiot, that I was giving up my career for, you know, children. And that was dumb. And I, I loved having children. I loved being a mom. Um, I don't know if I was a stay at home mom because I always had a career. Um, I was always a writer. I, I was, I published my first book well, I sold it in 1999 in the midst of having my kids. Um, so I, I somehow combined my ambition and, and I got a PhD before I started having children. So um, I, I'm unusual in that way. Um, but I will say that um, my experience with God now, when I came back to God after being an atheist, um, I experienced God in many ways, sometimes as a father, but more often as a mother. Um, and I mean, sometimes as a tree, sometimes as a child, sometimes as a river. Um, and I feel like some of this is me allowing my imagination to um, guide me into a kind of story world where I experience God in different shapes that make sense to my brain, to, to the stories in my brain. And um, God the Mother is sometimes sits with me on a, a swing on a porch and holds my hand, um, sometimes puts her hands on my head and blesses me with um, a special mother's blessing. Um, I, I write about a lot of this in my poetry that I post online. Uh, I, sometimes I have felt like she is sitting by me as I give birth to myself. Um, she's a doula, um, a midwife, um, 
sometimes she, you know, walks with me along a, sh a beach and we talk about the beach. A lot of the time I feel like we have a conversation where she asks me a question about why we are in the place that we are in. Because I set the place, I think. I, I, I create this imaginary space and then God enters it. And so sometimes she asks me, like, why are we here? And I don't always know the answer to that, but we'll sit and have a conversation about why the feeling of God is is useful for me to imagine in this specific place. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm still figuring this out. And, and mm -hmm. I love being on this journey of, of coming to a new understanding of God that is big. Um, so one of the things I would say about my Mormon belief in God was that I feel like Mormon Mormonism puts God into this little box into a very mm -hmm. small shape. And God doesn't fit into that box. God is immense. And I don't know if I would say that the Catholics are right, that God is a spirit like that is formless, because I also experience God slightly differently than that, but they might be closer to what I think of as God now than the Mormon, like within a male heterosexual body. Mm -hmm. um, that's, it's just, that's confines God. And I don't, God is beyond that. Mm -hmm. I remember being like 19, 20 and having, so I had, for, when I first moved to Utah, I was inactive and having some missionaries come up to me and, you know, kind of talking to me, kind of getting me to come back to church. And I remember saying to them, you know, they were like, well, well, why don't you come to church? Like, why don't you? And cause I was raised Mormon. Um, but I remember at that time telling them, I just don't think any one church has it all figured out. Like yeah. I just don't. And them saying, but wouldn't, but wouldn't it be great, like, if, like, if this is, like, if this really does have all the answers? And I remember <laughs> thinking, well, that, that really would be really great. And now, you know, 20 years later, I'm back to being like, yeah, I don't think any one church has it all figured out. Um, which is exactly where I was before. So I think that really is my honest belief. But I think you can find, there is so much truth in so many different places. And I think this idea of, wouldn't it be great if, if we really did like, you know, have it all figured out, like, no, we, we did, we figured it out. It's this, you know, this is the answer. Um, wanting so badly to, to have the right answer. Um, when maybe, I don't know, maybe we're not even meant to have all the answers. Maybe the whole thing is a journey. Maybe, you know, the whole point is the journey. The whole point is like the up and down and the pendulum swing of, you know, um, just coming into new understandings as you go through new things. Um, maybe that's the whole point. Maybe yeah, there's not I mean one answer. I think that I was very seduced by the Mormon idea that we have all the answers, mm -hmm. but that is only true if you think about God as a set of propositions that your logical mind can wrap around. So I, that is something I now reject. I don't think that the experience of God is a list of like yes or no questions <laughs> that that you find all the answers to. I, I think that's a really limited way of experiencing the world. And I think it cuts us off from the spiritual. It it I I I talk about this on one of my podcasts where I think that that Mormonism it, many Mormons say that they think that Mormonism is very emotional, but my experience of Mormon Mormonism was that it was rational and logical. Mm -hmm. And not emotional um, mm -hmm. and and definitely not spiritual. Like there were only some moments where you got the spirit instead of like, for instance, a sacrament meeting. 
A sacrament meeting, what are the parts of the sacrament meeting that are actually spiritual? To me, having a speaker come up and like tell you about scriptures and tell you what the doctrine of the church, and that's all That's all engaging your logical brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- sort of wish that in Mormonism we spent more time talking about the mystery of God. Again, that sounds like I'm, I'm a Catholic. Um, but I also wish there was more time just it, sitting in the quiet. Um, and that's, to me, like the Quaker tradition. Um, the Quaker tradition is everybody just sits and experiences God until they feel moved upon by the spirit to get up. And, and sometimes nobody does. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean the meeting is better or worse than an entirely silent meeting. Um, like God is always there. And I, I feel like Mormonism was so busy. We were just yeah. everything had to be filled with words and like logic and explaining stuff instead of just like sit and experience God in like your oneness like wouldn't it be great if we this is what i think i think it would be great if instead of all of the rooms being classrooms we had rooms where you know it was just a quiet space you just go there and nobody says anything you just Mm -hmm. sit and in and contemplate or not even contemplate that's because that makes it sound like it's a rational thing i feel like we need to like let go of this idea that there's a rationality and i think that all of that came out of a very specific time period that joseph smith was, you know, coming out of the Enlightenment when everybody thought you could find the answers to everything. And Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's what religion is. Um, So, yeah, I sort of reject this idea that we want all the answers. And so then my second answer to this is, I think it's very, very dangerous for any church, any institution to believe that they are the true church. And I'll tell you why. All you have to do is look at the corruption that happens in those institutions. So to me, I think, yeah, anytime you start thinking that all you're doing is you're giving power to the people who who are in charge and they are mortals and it's going to corrupt them. It's not good for them. It's not good for anybody else. And so I'm going to run far away from anybody who says that they are the one true anything. Um, You see it in presidential campaigns. You see it in like sports worship um, in Hollywood, like. All of that is the same thing. Anytime you think that one person is, you know, above everybody else, it's just dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's the, I'm going to give myself away. I was listening to one of your podcasts yesterday, but you were talking about how the Book of Mormon has the pride cycle. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, that's true for everybody, man. That's true for, <laughs> for everybody, um, in, including our own church. I just, I feel like, that's such a thing. You can't have you can't have humans. I say men, but humans, um, in charge of anything without corruption. I just don't think you can. It's too yeah. It's too enticing. It's too sweet to have that power. I don't know. I mean, that's why it's that's why our government has checks and balances, and mm-hmm. why we have elections. Guess what? The Mormon Church doesn't have. <laughs> any checks and balances against the leadership and it's terrible for them and it's terrible for all of the rest of us that's not that's not how you get a truth in my experience truth comes by like conflict and conversation not by one person god speaking the complete truth to them because even if god does speak the truth to them that person is mortal and they interpret it in their own way and it's always going to be a flawed way. And then the further they get away from the God experience, the less they're going to remember what it was really like. Mm-hmm. A big a big problem I felt all through my adult life in the church was the idea of um, 
the natural man and what the natural man is because the church teaches that the natural man is, you know, the enemy to God. And so for me, I always wondered what the, I was like, what is that? What is, what is the natural man? For me, it's anything. It's that gut instinct. It's the, it's really like my intuition is what I read that is. And and so anything that, that felt, you know, natural to me, but was contrary to what I was being taught was wrong. And so, but I think now I feel like, oh, how dangerous that is <laughs> to be told that like, no, any, like any like natural, like inclination that you have that is contrary to this, to what we're telling you is wrong. That just feels so dangerous to me. Um, and now I've gone back to where I'm like, nope, I'm going to rely heavily on my gut. Like, I feel like I really have worked hard uh, for a long time to like kind of fine tune that compass in in my gut and what that is and not it's been a process to come back to feeling okay to trust that um to feel like that is not going to lead me astray that not every um inclination I'm feeling is like a, a whispering from the adversary that I um it has been a process to come back to be able to trust myself to trust my instincts, my intuition, um, and that that is not an inherently bad thing, um, just because it's contrary to things I've been taught. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're even a step ahead of me because I, I spent so much time just listening to what other people told me was good and right that I suppressed, I think all of those internal, I didn't, I think I didn't have any idea who I was. (laughs) And I'm spending a lot of time now like digging down and figuring out who I am instead of what I felt like the pressure of Mormonism was to have this ideal human woman and to just try to shove myself into that shape over and over again. And, And so now I'm spending time. I feel like this is another experience that I've had with God that God's like, I don't need you to be a specific thing. Like, I love you. Mm-hmm. And God doesn't have a plan in the sense of, like, that I have to follow the same steps that everybody else follows and get to the same, you know, thing at the end. But rather, God's like, no, no, you're you're unfolding in yourself. And, and you're just supposed to figure out who you are. And that's what, I, that's what God wants me to do is to glory in who I am instead of pretending that all of those things don't exist and shoving them away. And then just only having this happy part of me that's the part that I show to the world and pretend mm-hmm. is the only part that exists. Um, so I feel like I'm, I've am i freed myself from the shackles of needing to be someone else's idea of yeah. a good woman. And now I can just spend my time like actually figuring out who I am. Maybe at some point I'll decide I want to improve myself. But right now, even the idea of self-improvement kind of makes me shudder. I'm, I'm just like, you know what? I'm I'm not going to because because I don't know if that fits me. Mm-hmm. And so right now I'm just figuring out who I am. Yeah. And yeah. then maybe we will come to a part later about making wanting to be a better version of myself, whatever that will be. But I won't be listening to other people tell me what that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. What about the whole idea that when you figure out who you are, like that is good enough? Like, how great would that be? (laughs) The whole self-improvement is like such a, it's, it's huge. Like not just in church, but it's everywhere. It's like, get better, get better, get better. And we're never or rarely okay with like, let's just be great where we are. Yeah. I, I had a really deep conversation with one of my kids recently. And I said this, 
to this child. I want you to imagine a world in which you are the ideal and that everybody wants to be just like you because you are the perfect of everything. Your body is perfect. You're smart, funny, beautiful, um, kind. And, and I want you to think that that is who you are. Cause to me, that's what my children are. My children are perfection, just mm-hmm. the way that they are. Um, that maybe that sounds like what I'm saying is that, you know, that it doesn't matter if they're mad at each other, but, but somehow I feel like that's my job as a mom is to give them that, that space. That is the mom space, the space where you don't have to pretend to be anything else. You can be grouchy and grumpy or sad or whatever. And your mom just says, like wraps her arms around you and says, you are perfect just the way that you are. I love all the parts of you. I love your grumpiness. I love you lashing out and being angry at other people. This is where you are. And I guess the only reason I say that now is that that's my experience with with a goddess, a a mother Mm -hmm. who's a god is that is whenever I go to her in prayer, that's what she says to me is, you don't have to stop being grumpy. Like you don't need to make yourself into something else. This, this, who you are is already what I want. Um, and so I don't know how to explain that within the system of the self-improvement. Like, you know, you're not good enough. It, it, it doesn't even make sense. I, I can't, I can't explain it to Mormons because they just end up <laughs> saying well, it's that eternal progression. You have to always be yeah, progressing. Yeah. Right. You have to be trying harder. Like if you say like you're acceptable just as you are, then that means that nobody ever does anything good for anybody else. And I'm like, ah, it's I don't know how to describe it to you, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's something else. Um, but I think it's the, the problem that Mormonism doesn't have really doesn't have unconditional love that like I wish that it did. And I would like to preach to people that God is unconditional love. But I can see why within Mormonism, it, that doesn't make sense because it's always it's about being worthy and like the temple recommend interview and, you know, check off this list of stuff. And yeah. have you done your visiting teaching or whatever they call it now? And you can never get to the end of the list of things. You can never feel good. And maybe that's what the system wants, because then whenever th- anything bad happens, like your daughter dies, <laughs> the system doesn't say, oh, it turns out our idea of God is wrong and insufficient to your life experience. Mm-hmm. The institution then says instead, oh, no, it's your fault, victim blaming, um, because you can never be enough yeah. in the, inside of that system. So it's always your fault, no matter what happens. Yeah. It's not the fault of the system. Yeah. I read a thing the other day that maybe a couple of years ago would have helped me. Now I'm like, it's too much for me to even think about now. But... It came right on the, and I can't remember where I read it or where it was posted, but it came right on the heels of the policy reversal. And it talked about really looking at the church in what is doctrine, what is policy, and what is tradition. And being able to separate those things. And for me, like being, you know, like I was active for a lot of years, like through my adult years and held callings and, um, Still, I think I was even unclear on like, I think I took a lot of things that were just tradition and thought they were at least policy, if not doctrinal. Um, But I feel like if we really break that down, um, it frees up so much of what we think we need to be doing as Mormons. Um, I still say we, I haven't gone to church in a while. 
Um, it's hard to break that we thing. Uh, but um, I feel like it it would free us up if we really took a closer look and didn't hold. I feel like we hold so many things to a standard like it's doctrine, but it's not doctrine. Um, but there are so many. I'm trying to figure out what what it is that makes us all hold one another to that. Like it's not even necessarily leadership. It's 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 just us as members looking at one another and holding each other other to those standards that aren't real. It's not real standard. It's not real. And I don't know what that is. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes I would push back on somebody who would say. Oh, that's not doctrine. That's just culture or tradition. Because there's a part mm. of me that's like, oh, that's a nice excuse for you to right. say that, you know, it doesn't count. Um, like, for instance, the problem that I talked about with um, my ward thinking that um, you don't need medication or therapy to deal with mental illness. Mm. Um, like, yeah, I know that's not doctrine, but... My, that's the way my ward was so you can't just dismiss it unless we start having a campaign within the church of like re-educating people and saying we got to let go of these old ideas but on the other hand I will admit that even even the the proclamation on the family is not technically doctrine mm. I mean I know there are a lot of Mormons who think of it as doctrine and they will tell you that it's doctrine mm -hmm. But you can go and say to them, like, guess how things become doctrine? They have to be presented in general conference. They have to be voted on by common consent. And then they are put into the scriptures. That's mm -hmm. how you know their doctrine. And until that happens, the family proclamation is just like a nice idea that somebody mm -hmm. wrote down in words that people like. It's, it's yeah. no more that doctrine than the picture of Jesus Christ that everybody uses in church. I mean, that's a an image. It's not doctrine. We don't know that Christ had blue eyes. It actually is sort of silly to think that Christ had blue eyes or any, like, we don't know what color his eyes were. Mm -hmm. Probably they were brown, but it, um, so yeah, I mean, it is useful sometimes to do that, but when you're in a word community where nobody cares about that, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it matters. Also, I, I can't even go back to that anymore. Like, I feel like that would have been like early on in my questioning of things I'm like maybe like maybe that would have helped me hold on and try to you know walk that line for a little bit of like being able to go even though I was real angry <laughs> or like really like rolling my eyes or trying you know really hard to I don't know yeah no but, I'm, I think I hit that point too I I have a friend who keeps telling me that now that um, Russell M. Nelson is telling everybody not, to not use the word Mormon yeah. To refer yeah. to the institutional church that now we can use it to refer to ourselves <laughs> and we can make it mean whatever we want because it's not attached to him and right, right. the brethren anymore. So you could say we Mormons and mean <laughs> a completely different group of people than the LDS people over there who go to church every week. I kind of like it. I'm like, yeah, you know, I love Mormonism. I don't like the church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And Mormonism can be whatever parts I like. That's the I thing. There, there is good in it. It's I, I wish I felt more allowed to pick the good parts from that that are good and, and hold to that. And I guess I still I, I do on a personal level. You know, there is stuff that there is good stuff that I learned along the way that I take that and I'm like, yep, this is good. And I hold that. Well, this is what I have to say to that. It is allowed and you are doing it already. <laughs> 
Um, just because certain people don't like you to do it, and just because you've decided not to t attend church anymore and let those people have power over you, you are doing it. You are allowed, and that's what I feel like too. I'm allowed to say that I believe whatever I want and call it Mormonism because I said so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have every bit as much authority over God and like my vision of God as the prophet of the church does because I have experiences with God. So the end, they don't get to be in charge of me anymore. They don't get to tell me what's good and bad. And um, uh, one other thought, um, my editor who uh, works with me on the Bishop Wife books, um, she said to me, this is really, really early on in our conversation about Mormonism. She said, religion, you know, is social control. <laughs> and I thought about, I've thought about that over and over again. I've come back to it and, and have realized how much that is true. Like the institution of religion, like whatever church you belong to is about social control. It's not about your experience with God. And that's why on some level, I don't need to go to the Mormon church or any other church to have an experience with God. Right. I am just fine on my own. Now, community maybe is a different thing, but I don't want to have a community that's based on social control, which is what mm -hmm. I do think Mormonism is based on. You look at all the like modesty standards, you look at um, the word of wisdom. And to me, it's almost as if nobody cares about the, like it isn't about whether you have porn shoulders or not. And I think Mormons would even admit this. It's not even about whether you drink coffee because you can have Diet Coke and get your caffeine that way. Mm -hmm. It's just about proving obedience, right? People will use that word. But really, mm -hmm. obedience means that you give up your choice to some other authority and you let them make choices for you. I just mm -hmm. am not going to do that anymore. Um, so, I mean, like... I don't even know what it would mean to go back to Mormonism at this point because I've so deconstructed this idea of other people making choices for me. I don't let people do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, in any situation, people don't get to make choices for me. <laughs> I wish I could high-five you from here. Uh, well, I wish you luck on your sabbatical. I freaking love your podcast. Oh, thank thank you, you for putting it out. It has made me braver to be vocal about it because so much of what you say ah it it resonates with me thank you for putting it out there honestly um and i, I will think keep listening. we all have have a chance to this is the great thing about modern technologies we can all now have a voice and like talk to each other even if we don't live next to each other i love it me too this has been episode six Thanks to Maddie Harrison for sitting down and having an open conversation with me. Check the show notes for where you can find her books and listen to her podcast. Tune in next week when I talk to my friend Jared Garrett about his upbringing in a fundamentalist cult and his later conversion to the LDS church. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast. Email us questions and comments at arewealloudpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.